Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole and I'm Head of Chambers at King's Chambers. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of important developments in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law. We hope it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Today's the 10th of October 2018 and we're going to look at today's Supreme Court judgment in Darnley and Croydon Health Services NHS Trust. The neutral citation is 2018, UK Supreme Court, 50. There'll be a fact sheet to accompany this podcast, and details of how to obtain it will be given at the end. I'm delighted to be joined by two colleagues from King's Chambers, both specialists in clinical negligence and personal injury litigation, Helen Mulholland and Richard Livingston. So let's start by looking at the facts of the case of Darnley. In this case, Mr Darnley, the claimant, attended an A&E department with a head injury. He left after a short time and went home where he collapsed and suffered, unfortunately, very severe and permanent neurological injuries. He sued the trust responsible and at trial he lost his claim. That was a trial before a very experienced uh, clinical negligence judge, His Honour Judge Robinson. He appealed to the Court of Appeal and again he lost. He was granted permission to appeal to the Supreme Court and the five justices have unanimously allowed that appeal. Judgment was given by Lord Lloyd-Jones with whom the other four justices of the Supreme Court agreed. They found that the trust was liable for the claimant's avoidable injuries and they've sent the case back to the High Court for a determination of the compensation that the trust should pay to the claimant. Well, as we know, every case or nearly every case turns on its facts and in this case the factual findings of the trial judge have remained very important right through to the Supreme Court. So uh, Richard could you just take us through the facts of the case in a little bit more detail? The claimant was struck on the head and attended hospital with his friend Mr Tubman. He was clerked in by a receptionist and described in the judgment as a civilian and That meant that she was neither a nurse nor a doctor and that she had no clinical qualifications. She told him in error that he would have to wait for four to five hours to be seen. In actual fact, he would have been seen within 30 minutes. Unfortunately, he decided to leave after 19 minutes and returned home. Soon after returning home, he deteriorated rapidly and was rushed back to hospital. Um, where he was found to have an extradural hematoma, um, which caused him to suffer from permanent and serious neurological injury. It was found at trial that the claimant complained to the receptionist that he felt like he might collapse, and she told him that if he did, he would be treated as an emergency. Well, I'm sure that was uh, reassuring to him, at least. Um, what, you get a flavour of what happened from the, from the judgment. In terms of the facts, it is important, isn't it, to recognise that on appeal, or this appeal, was not against the facts as they've been found by the judge. And so the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court are deciding issues of law on the basis of those facts. And as we'll see uh, later, those facts became very important in their determination. 
He was with a friend you, you've mentioned. What, what, what did the judge find about any disputes as, as to facts as between the friend and the claimant and the receptionist? What did the receptionist say had, uh, had happened? The receptionist, as I understand it, relied on her usual practice. There were two receptionists in question and they weren't sure which of it, uh, which one of them had dealt with the claimant. And they both relied on their usual practice, but they had, as is very often the case in the case of clinicians, they had no recollection of the particular events. The significant thing, uh, to my mind, is that the judge found the friend and the friend's evidence very compelling. And the friend was very clear about that discussion. Because Mr Darnley, obviously, he had a head injury. I don't think there was any finding that that interfered with his capacity to make decisions about himself. But on the other hand, he was with a friend, and the friend was helping him, I suppose, make decisions about what to do. Yes, there was no suggestion that he lacked capacity. He was obviously not feeling well. He said he had a a bad headache, although the trial judge didn't accept that he had said it was the worst headache of his life, which is obviously a a significant matter in uh, neurological cases. Um, But... This discussion about, I think I might collapse, was significant to the trial judge and, and proves significance, actually, at the Supreme Court, where they refer to it again, uh, and that he, the receptionist did indeed say, if you do collapse, you'll be treated as an emergency. The implication, I suppose, being if you don't, uh, then, then we won't. And four to five hours, well, the advice he was given was four to five hours until what? Well, that's one of the interesting things, because at the conclusion of the Supreme Court judgment, the Supreme Court say uh, they refer to this four to five hours and they say before being seen by a doctor. Well, specifically, that was not the finding of the trial judge. Actually, at page 63 of the initial judgment, His Honour Judge Robinson said uh, when the claimant arrived at the reception desk, he and Mr Tubman were told only that they would have to wait for up to four to five hours before the claimant would be seen. Not before the claimant would be seen by a doctor, but before the claimant would be seen, again, the implication being by any clinical professional. Yeah, that's par- paragraph 63, was it, of the Yes, of, of, of the initial High Court decision. And, Richard, when, when the claimant left the A&E, d- did he tell anyone he was leaving? Obviously, he told his friend and they left together, but did he tell any of the staff? He just walked out, Right, was the finding. Yeah, and... Um, the judge did make findings, didn't he, the trial judge, about what he would have done had he been given accurate information, which, which ought to have been he'd be seen within 30 minutes. Absolutely, and those findings were found to be extremely significant, uh, both at the Court of Appeal and in the Supreme Court, but they, the judge found as a fact that if the claimant had been told he would have been seen within 30 minutes, he would have stayed. Uh, and then either, obviously, he would have been seen and fast-tracked or he would have had his collapse on the premises. Right, so if he'd, if he'd had the collapse, which probably wouldn't have been avoidable, but if he'd had the collapse, it would have been in hospital exactly. rather than at home. So he would have been transferred, I think the finding was, to a specialist unit. He would have undergone surgery and he would have avoided most, if not all, of his permanent and serious neurological injuries. Yes, yeah. I think it's fair to say that the medical causation position uh, was relatively straightforward. Okay, so if those are the core facts of the case, let's look very briefly at that waiting time because he was told four to five hours. Um, He would have been seen within half an hour if he'd stayed, but he left after 90 minutes. But even 90 minutes is after a 15-minute window that I think, Helen, is contained in some 
national in nice guidance, is that right? Well, indeed so. There were nice guidelines in place at the time for the triage and assessment of head injuries. And the guidelines which were in force at that time specified that all patients presenting to an emergency department with a head injury should be assessed by a trained member of staff within a maximum of 15 minutes. That, of course, is to assess whether or not they are high risk or low risk. And it was accepted by the defendant that those guidelines were breached. The claimant was not assessed within those 15 minutes. The judge, however, found that the breach of the guidelines was not of itself a breach of duty. The guidelines, of course, give targets, which in the context of a busy emergency department might not be achievable. And in fact, the experts in their joint statement agreed that they would not always be met. The judge did, however, say that it would have been a breach of duty not to assess the claimant, a patient with a head injury, within 30 minutes. But of course, we know that the claimant left after 19 minutes in the department. I think in the Supreme Court, these nice guidelines were, didn't form any part of the decision-making of the, no. of the no. court. But it is, it's, it's interesting because I think, Richard, in some cases, people think, well, if there's been a breach of national guidance, then, of course, that's negligent. But clearly that's not the case. That didn't form um, part of the Supreme Court's ruling. Mm. And I know in a different context, for example, referral for delay, uh, referral for suspected cancer, there are nice guidance. And it's not necessarily negligent to fail to follow that guidance. So it's good practice to follow the guidance, but it's not necessarily a breach of duty. We'll, we'll come Absolutely. back to the findings of breach in a moment. But let, let's look first at duty of care and the role of the receptionist. And there were questions about what was the duty of the receptionist? Was there a breach of that duty? And I think, Helen, in the Court of Appeal, there was a split decision on that, 2-1. The majority was... Um, uh, Lord Justice Jackson and Lord Justice Sales. Well, absolutely. um, What what did they say? Well, the Court of Appeal looked very carefully at whether or not the receptionist owed a duty of care to the claimant. And Lord Justice Jackson said that it would be going too far to impose a duty on the receptionist. And he said that to hold her responsible, and the defendant trust responsible, uh, on her behalf, would be to go too far. It would create a new head of liability for NHS trusts. And he saw the imposition of such a duty as something novel. Uh, Lord Justice Jackson was also concerned that if such a duty were imposed, it might open the floodgates. Uh, The litigation might be founded on the basis of what was said and to whom in the emergency department. And that healthcare providers might just instruct their receptionists not to say anything to patients about waiting times. Mm. Um, So that was the majority view. There was a dissenting judgment from Lord Justice McComb. Why did he disagree with that approach? Well, Lord Justice McComb said that it was artificial to divide the functions of the hospital into medical and non-medical staff and that the duty of the hospital had to be considered in the round. He accepted that receptionists are unskilled, but he said the duty on them was not to provide misleading or inaccurate information. Uh, He did say that the case was very fact-specific and he returned to the findings of fact of His Honour Judge Robinson. Of course, those being that it was four to five hours to be seen at all. So the Supreme Court on breach of duty said that the Court of Appeal or the majority decision in the Court of Appeal was flawed in a number of respects. Um, Firstly, in relation to the imposition of a duty of care, 
the Supreme Court said this is not a novel situation. This is a well-established situation where there has been established over many years that there is a duty of care. So the test in Caparo, which involves consideration of whether it's fair, just and reasonable to impose a duty of care, didn't really arise because that only arises where there isn't an established duty of care. Here there is. We know that hospital trusts, including their accident and emergency services, owe a duty of care to people who present themselves for medical assistance. And that duty is to avoid causing harm or avoidable injury to those people. Uh, So there was no need to worry about an additional layer of liability being created here. It's well established that there is liability in these circumstances. Uh, Secondly, the Supreme Court said the Court of Appeal majority erred in making a distinction between medical and non-medical staff, or what His Honour Judge Robinson called civilians in his judgment. Uh, The duty of care is owed by the trust. Whether they deploy civilian or medical staff in the particular role. Uh, So you have to look trust-wide. This was exactly what Lord Justice McComb had said when he gave his dissenting judgment. And the circumstances were such that the trust owed the duty, as is well established, to a person attending seeking uh, assistance. And the third error that the Supreme Court identified the majority had made in the Court of Appeal on the question of duty of care was that they conflated or elided issues of the existence of a duty of care with negligence. So the Court of Appeal had been very worried about accident emergency departments being very busy places, uh, hardly, to quote from them, havens of tranquility. And they were so worried about imposing a duty of care in those situations that they mixed up considering breach of duty, which, in relation to which the busyness of a department might be highly relevant, with the existence of the duty in the first place, in respect of which it is not relevant. Uh, And so the Court of Appeal majority had directed its attention to what the Supreme Court called false targets, And they said this, the question under consideration is whether the respondent owes a duty to take reasonable care when providing by its receptionists, in this case, information as to the period of time within which medical attention is likely to be available. More fundamentally, these observations are really concerned not with the existence of the duty of care but with questions as to whether there has been a negligent breach of duty. And, And the Supreme Court said they weren't worried about the floodgates um, argument. Uh, They thought that those concerns were, quote, considerably overstated, that the burden of proof is always on the claimant to prove all the elements of the tort. Uh, That remains, uh, and uh, there was no reason to displace that in this case. So although the criticism was that the Court of Appeal majority had conflated breach and duty, We need now to turn to breach, the Supreme Court having established very firmly that there was a duty of care. So what did the Supreme Court say about negligence and breach of duty, Richard? Well, Lord Lloyd-Jones was keen to emphasise that it's the particular role performed by the individual concerned 
um, which is likely to have an important bearing on the question of the breach of the duty of care. And he highlighted Lord Justice Mustill's explanation in Wilshire and Essex Area Health Authority that there is a legitimate expectation um, of the patient that he or she will receive from each person concerned with his care a degree of skill appropriate to the task which he or she undertakes. Now, a receptionist in an A&E department cannot, of course, be expected to give medical advice or information, but he or she can be expected to take reasonable care not to provide misleading advice as to the availability of medical assistance. And so the standard required is that of an averagely competent and well-informed person performing the function of a receptionist at an emergency department. Um, and it appeared to be accepted that the information given by that receptionist was incomplete and misleading. Um, and the chief executive of the trust had said so in a letter to Mr Darnley. Um, and in addition to that, um, Lord Lloyd-Jones was keen to point out that it's reasonably foreseeable that a patient given um, misleading information about waiting times um, might decide in those circumstances that um, they would leave the department as Mr Darnley um, regretfully did. So that actually had been a finding, hadn't it, of His Honour Judge Robinson at the, the trial. So it's another one of those findings that proved crucial um, in the Supreme Court's decision. Just so we've got... Sorry, Alan, go well, on. I was just going to say, just before we leave the question of... Um, the existence of the breach, the existence of the duty. I'm sorry, and the, then the breach. You can perhaps understand why those two became enmeshed in the Court of Appeal, because I know something that will be of concern to hospital trusts is the practicalities, really, on the ground in the emergency department, because busy emergency departments, you know, I think Jackson said, are not always havens of tranquility. Um, and the Supreme Court, I don't think, was dismissing those legitimate considerations, but was saying that those are not brought to bear when you consider the, the duty and the existence of the duty. But they may be highly relevant when you come to consider whether or not that duty has been breached. Because if you've got a particularly busy shift, obviously that's going to be a consideration in terms of how the staff respond. Yeah, and we've already said, for example, although they didn't comply with nice guidelines for seeing a head injured patient within 15 minutes, that wasn't considered negligent. Well, exactly Partly so. yes. because it was such a busy department. Absolutely. So causation then, Helen. There's, we've, yes. got bre- we've got duty of care, we've got breach. We need causation in order to establish liability. Um, what did the Supreme Court say about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Supreme Court didn't devote an awful lot of its decision to causation. The vast majority of the decision seems to me to be dealing with the existence of the duty. But it did look, obviously, at causation, which flowed from the breach which it had found, namely these four to five hours to be seen. And once again, as you were saying, Nigel, it returned to the findings of fact, as it must, and the findings of fact in this case that um, the claimant would have remained at hospital if the correct information had been given. 
Now, the Supreme Court had to consider whether or not the claimant's unannounced departure broke the chain of causation that had been raised below. And below, Lord Justice Jackson had said that the scope of the duty could not extend to liability for the patient who walks out without telling anybody. Well, the Supreme Court again criticised that reasoning, saying that actually a proper analysis of the breach and its causative implication, combined with the findings of the judge, meant that the claimant's case must succeed. So in other words, if the claimant had been told that he would be seen before 30 minutes, as he ought to have been, he would have stayed. And his decision to leave was therefore founded on this incorrect information. So the judge found that they had found at first instance that the claimant's departure, given what he had been told, was reasonably foreseeable. So it's it's for that reason, to my mind, that anything considering a break in the chain of causation is artificial because of the, the basis on which he made his decision to leave. Yeah. So the defendant couldn't say, well, the reason he suffered his injuries was his own decision to leave when his decision to leave had been caused by their negligence. Exactly so. If he had been told you'll be seen in half an hour and left, obviously an entirely different situation. But that was not the finding of the judge below. So um, we've got duty, finding of duty of care, breach and causation, game set and match to the claimant in the Supreme Court. And it goes back now to the trial judge or a trial judge to determine what compensation should be paid. That's not a matter the Supreme Court would decide. Well, this podcast is called Debrief, so we need to pick over some of the bones of this decision. Um, Just in relation to a receptionist, and this may trouble... NHS trusts up and down the country but what what are the duties of the receptionist? We know from this there's a duty not to give completely misleading information but is there a positive side to the duty? Have the Supreme Court helped determine what receptionists should do? Well as you know part of the concern particularly of Lord Justice Jackson and to some extent on the part of the trial judge as well was that this would lead to very defensive practice on the part of NHS trusts and specifically receptionists. So whereas at one time you might have said to the receptionist, could you tell me how much longer I'm going to have to wait with my sick child? And they might have told you, now they might say, oh, I can't tell you anything about that. That's part of the concern. Or that leaflets would have to be handed out to say to people, you leave and um, you leave at your own peril, really. Or that you hand out a leaflet with regard to a head injury. Those are all possibilities. Uh, For my own part, the decision seems to me to imply that there is a duty on the receptionist uh, and that they they won't just, they mustn't just do nothing. Um, But there are potentially far-reaching implications and it's difficult for trusts to know what they should advise their receptionists to do. Well, uh, of course, paragraph 26 um, of the Supreme Court judgment is fairly um, informative on that issue where it was said um, and I'm quoting from the judgment it's not unreasonable to require that patients in the position of the appellant should be provided on arrival whether orally by receptionist by leaflet or prominent notice with accurate information that they would normally be seen by a triage nurse within 30 minutes yeah, I, I, I wonder about that. For example, a notice saying to that effect, that would be relevant to someone who comes in with a head injury. But in an A&E department, there may be 
a hundred, a thousand different kinds of presentation, hand injuries, suspected heart attack, overdose, etc., 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 you can carry on forever. Should there be notices in respect of every kind of patient or leaflets for every kind of patient? Well, it's a good question, and one has to wonder what, what is meant by the position of the appellant. I read that as somebody with a head injury, and that seems to me to be the particular issue in this case and the particular um, problem, obviously, that came to pass. But it's a, a fair point whether or not that would satisfy the duty just to have notices up. Do you deal with everyone on the same basis? Probably not. Yeah. Now, the, du- the duty of the receptionist was uh, explained by the Supreme Court, not in a Bolam sense. So it wasn't a professional uh, standard of care um, assessed by reference to standards within the profession, the well-known Bolam test, but rather a more general approach to negligence, which is you know, what would be expected of a competent receptionist. Now, after the Court of Appeal decision, there was concern about, well, what, would trusts just put, quote, civilian staff on the front line to protect themselves from being liable? Now, following the Supreme Court's decision, should they be putting nurses in that position? Or would it make, do you think, Richard, it would make any difference to the finding on the duty and then the standard of care if there'd been a nurse that had been the first point of contact? In view of how the, the judgment is directed, um, what we can assume is that there now is a positive duty on a, a receptionist at an A&E department not to provide misleading information. So in that respect, it doesn't matter, as I see it, whether a nurse is manning the reception desk or whether um, a, a civilian is manning the reception desk, um, if you're to use the terminology adopted by His Honour Judge Robinson. I suspect if it had been a nurse on the reception and the facts had been the same, you'd have had a fairly straightforward case that wouldn't have ended up in the Supreme Court. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point for trusts, whether or not they then would seek to put nurses in the place of receptionists. There'd be a costs implication and a practical yeah. implication of that. And, of course, the role that was being performed was clerking in a person who's attended, they then became, as it were, a patient of the of the trust. So if, whoever is performing that role, it's the role that dictates the, the standard of care that's to be expected. Um, and it doesn't vary according to the experience or qualifications of the person who holds that role. Having said that, if it should have been obvious to a nurse, and a nurse had seen Mr Darnley initially, that he would ought to be a priority patient then surely the nurse would have a, quote, higher duty of care or higher level of standard of care, I should say, than a receptionist who wouldn't be expected to. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway that, that's it, it's also interesting that there have been other cases where, quote, civilians have, um, have been found to have a duty of care or owed a duty of care to... Um, members of the public. For example, in Kenton Griffiths, which is the case that's mentioned in the Supreme Court and in the courts below, is the 999 ambulance call handler who gives out misinformation and there was a duty of care and a breach of it on behalf of the defendant there. There's been a recent case called Sheraton Chief Constable Greater Manchester when a police 999 call handler had reassured a concerned patient that police, a concerned parent, I should say, that police would go to her daughter's house to check on her safety um, and they had assumed thereby a, a duty of care. Unfortunately, when they turned up, the daughter had 
committed suicide and was found dead. So in that case, there was an assumption of responsibility. So there is a bit of a pattern here of, of civilians well, uh, well, there is. acting. And in the case of Macaulay, of course, it was the same hospital trust and, in fact, the same reception desk in the same department which was remarkable coincidence absolutely Um, and albeit there were other concerns in that case involving clinicians because there was a blood test which wasn't pursued for a two-hour period and so on there was this interaction between patient who was in the waiting area and receptionist which led him to leave so so the receptionist same department as you say had given inaccurate information to a patient who thought it was then safe to leave when it wasn't, and suffered injury as a result. It's a remarkable similarity. And in that case, Mr Justice Foskett had found in favour of the claimant. Yes. And in certain, to a certain extent, I suppose, that's been reinforced by the Supreme Court's decision in... Yes, Arnold. I think it has. Uh, the, the, in the Supreme Court judgment, the issue of booking in seems to me to be fundamental. So there is this idea of the duty being owed by the whole hospital trust and and the significant moment is when you're booked in because that is the time when the relationship is formed. That's not to say that if you set foot over the threshold of A&E and collapse that they won't pay any attention to you, but But the booking in is significant. If you walked in and walked out, there wouldn't have been a duty of care. Or if you wandered by the entrance, etc. What about this fact that he he left? So he left without informing anyone. He left after 19 minutes. He took responsibility, didn't he, for his own actions. We've already established there was no finding that his head injury had caused him to not have capacity to make decisions about his own welfare. He took a decision. Why Why shouldn't he be held, as it were, accountable for his own decision-making? Well, as the Supreme Court saw it, and by providing misleading information about waiting times, um, it's reasonably foreseeable um, that someone in a grievously injured state... Um, might elect to leave the accident and emergency department. Um, and of course, as, as Helen has said, the finding of His Honour Judge Robinson was that if he'd been provided with accurate information about the waiting times, then he would have stayed uh, at accident and emergency and would... Uh, on balance, have been spared um, the injury. I do think this is very interesting, though, because for me it's a potential sea change in how um, the patient, the role of the patient and the doctor-patient relationship are being viewed. With Montgomery, we very much saw this relationship between clinician and patient. It was corroborative. It was partly about the patient taking ownership of their own treatment, being given all of the options and then electing for one. And this seems to really move away from Montgomery to some extent because after all this gentleman did leave after 19 minutes which isn't a terribly long time um, and there is no implication for him in having done so. But he didn't make an informed choice of course. Well that's the point of the Supreme Court and that's why ultimately it's the correct decision but I can see why healthcare providers might feel a little bit jumpy about it. But again it comes back to the facts doesn't it? On the facts of this case he exercised that autonomy on misinformation. So in the future, a claimant would have to prove that they were positively misled and their actions were dictated by or caused, or there was a contribution to them, by misinformation or inaccurate 
uh, information given to them by a, by a receptionist or in similar circumstances. Yes, which I think is why the Supreme Court say, well, no, this isn't floodgates. And just to address your point, Helen, that there may be a number of trusts who feel a bit jumpy about this decision, and I'm sure they will derive some comfort for the fact, from the fact that um, the trust in this case weren't able to offer an explanation as to why misinformation had been provided. Yes, I think that's right. Um, and Which, of course, is relevant for breach of the, duty. It brings us back again, doesn't it, to the very stark findings of fact, which, again, McComb, who the Supreme Court have gone with, has said, you know, those are, this is a particularly stark case and an unusual case. All right, so the Supreme Court has adopted a fairly straightforward analysis in Darnley. Uh, was there a duty of care? Yes, there was. Well established in similar si- situations. Was there negligence? Yes, because woefully misleading information was given to the patient. And on the facts of the cases they'd been found by His Honour Judge Robinson, there was causation. And there was no break in the chain of causation by reason of the fact that Mr Darnley chose to uh, leave the department without informing anyone uh, for the reasons that we've discussed. Uh, It doesn't matter because the duties on the trust, whether it deployed... Uh, non-medical or medical staff in the role that was being performed by the receptionist uh, on this occasion. Uh, So, um, very sadly, the catastrophic consequences that flowed from this case will now have to be uh, determined by the High Court in terms of compensation. Uh, But um, if you'd like more information... Uh, about the cases that we've referred to during our discussion, then they'll be on our fact sheet with some uh, links to those cases or reports of those cases. If you want that fact sheet, then please email podcast at kingschambers.com and you can look out for more information about future debrief podcasts and other podcasts from King's Chambers on our website, www.kingschambers.com. Just go to the Resources and Training tab. So I'd like to thank Helen and Richard. My name is Nigel Poole. That was a debrief on Darnley. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.